fridge again. Are you able to switch off your fridge? Really? Jesus. Uh, this is what I have to put up with. Yeah. Every, Every week. Time. Every yeah, week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, and I have to edit out the fridge. Uh, uh, so are we actually recording? Yeah, we're, we're recording. We're good to go. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Matt, it's podcast 26. It is podcast 26. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are we have a special guest. We do. We have the wonderful Harriet Brettel from the Planetary Society. I got it right this time. <laughs> um, how are you, Harriet? I'm very good. Thanks Thank for joining us again. Thanks for having me again. Uh, so in the kitchen of dreams. In the kitchen of dreams. Is that, is that what we called it last time? Kitchen of Destiny, I believe. <laughs> oh, kitchen of destiny. Um, so we're going to talk about a number of things, exoplanets. But the first thing we want to talk about is Trappist One. Very exciting. Isn't we should it? start there, shouldn't yes, we? Yes. Let's. So tell us all about <laughs> Trappist One, Harriet, and, and with no mistakes, Everything like we do. That I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I mean, so this was an announcement that NASA made a couple of weeks ago now, isn't it? So old news. But very, very big news, which is really exciting. So TRAPPIST-1 is a star system that is 40 light years from Earth. Mm-hmm. So close, but not too close. So we can yeah. talk about going to visit sometime. As but... we mentioned earlier, Centuri being four light years and this being 40. I got a bit upset when I realised we probably couldn't send a probe yeah. there that quickly. Yeah, it's ten, ten times further. Damn it. And it was hard enough, mm. wasn't it? It was like a, a lifetime of breakthrough star shot to get there. Yeah. So, yeah, you're suddenly talking ten lifetimes. Oh. It's pushing it for yeah, us, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it's a long way away. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Let's, Still, let's not go... On a positive. On a positive. But note, very exciting. we know that there's lots of planets, which is very exciting. Yeah, that is super right? exciting. So, uh, NASA announced that there are seven known exoplanets going around this star, which is really cool. They are named TRAPPIST-B, TRAPPIST-C, TRAPPIST-D, E, F, G and H... So they're very imaginative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they sat right. long. They thought long and hard. Long about and that hard about it. No, I'm assuming yeah. Trappist A then is the star itself mm-hmm. in kind of that talk. Yeah. So there's a kind of standard naming mm. for exoplanets. At least I've noticed. So the the system tends to be known by the telescope that discovered it. So Trappist actually stands for the Transiting Planets and Planetesimals Small Telescope. Mm. Right. Affectionately okay. known as Trappist. Um, Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, and then all of the planets are kind of B to whatever as they go out away from the star. Um, so what can I tell you about these planets? Uh, they are in a solar system-like arrangement, which is very exciting. Mm. You must have seen the NASA images, right, that they've created of these. Uh, the travel posters are really cool, yes. but also kind of a little bit of an explanation of what they look like and how yeah. they potentially could compare to, yeah. to our solar system. Three of them are in their habitable zone, mm-hmm. which means that theoretically that they are um, at the right temperature to support liquid water, which is one of the things that we look for when we're looking at potential life forming on other planets. But could the other ones, if they've got a reasonable atmosphere, be also habitable? Mm. The ones further out, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So if you have a dense atmosphere that can keep some of the heat in, um, that's definitely an option. Um, If you think about our solar system, some of the areas of potential life are completely outside of our theoretical habitable zone, Mm. right? So if you will read science fiction, 
you'll hear about Titan or mm. Europa, right? It's potentials for life. And they're super far out. But because they've got Jupiter and Saturn and uh, kind of this thermal heating effect that they get from orbiting around these giant planets, um, theoretically they could be at the right temperature to harbour life as well. What, so. I, what I love about Titan is because it's, it would be a sort of methane-based life, so mm-hmm. it, it would have to survive in liquid methane rather than liquid water. I think that's a really exciting place to go and have a look because you think... Well, if life can start in liquid methane, I mean, imagine if you found life on Titan, it would just it would more than open up than if you found life on Europa. Mm-hmm. It, you know, Europa will be a mate would be amazing. I'll take it? life anywhere. Absolutely, that'd be good. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many different options, right? I mean, I was listening to I can't remember which scientist it was who was saying this the other day, but if you think about the Earth, life on the Earth formed pretty quickly after. The heavy bombardment stopped. Well, there's, there's a there's which a, is there's a whole there's a they found a whole new bacteria, didn't they? Quite recently, that's that's three hundred million years older than the previous discovery. So it started even earlier than oh, they wow, thought. That's even better. It's yet to be verified, but it uh-huh. look, it looks very very much like it is. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's but yeah that's yeah yes. So it's very very soon after the Earth cooled down, and it's mm-hmm. possible. Yeah. Yeah. So if if it appeared life appeared so quickly on our planet, then that makes it more likely that we might see it cropping up elsewhere. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And but... so the, the three planets that are in the habitable zone, mm-hmm. have they have they said which might be more susceptible for potential life, or is it just that they're saying at the moment we don't know enough? Mm. So I think it's fair to say that we really don't know at this point um i guess one of the things that we do know is the size of these planets Mm -hmm. and how far they are out from there so let's talk about size for a minute so their star compared to our star what are we talking about it is i've got the data here it's like you Uh knew the questions to ask me so this star trappist one is an ultra cool dwarf yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I did mention it was my nickname at school. It wasn't really. I'm five foot eight. It's not that bad. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, oh. astronomers know all the cool things to name things, right? This is it. So this is this star is eight percent the mass of our sun, mm-hmm. um, around eleven percent radius of our sun. So it is significantly smaller than than our star. Probably more comparable to Jupiter than it is to our sun in terms of size. Um, it's like I say it's ultra cool dwarf star and that makes it really uh, a great star for us to look at in terms of exoplanet detection so the smaller the star um, that kind of increases the probability that we'll be able to detect planets going around it Um, yeah I suppose it's a bit like trying to spot a a fly flying in front of a low wattage light bulb rather than in front of a floodlight yeah so the, the, the method that was used to detect this planet system was called the transit method. Mm-hmm. And the way that that works is essentially you have a telescope looking at the star. And as the planet, or planets in this case, pass in front of the star, the light, the amount of light that you get when you're looking at it yeah. drops because you have kind of a little blot blocking it out, right? Um, you can detect the, the amount that the light dips. And from that, you can figure out the size of the planet and how mm. quickly it's orbiting yeah, around timing. the star. Right. Yeah, exactly. But how, how do you separate the timing? If there's multiple bodies, mm-hmm. how do you separate the timing between the two? So say if one's... Particularly if they've, if they've got sympathetic timing, how do you then get extract that data? That's something I've always... Mm-hmm. 
So what you have to do is a kind of time series analysis, so to speak. This is going to sound... TRA. I know. TSA. TSA. Yeah. What am I talking about? I've lost my my acronising of gene. But what you can do is you can kind of overlap the the periods. So you know that each of the planets, well, you assume that each of the planets is orbiting around at a constant period. So like for the Earth, it's going around the sun one time a year. So if you looked at the dip of light, so you were looking at the Earth-Sun system you would see a little dip in the sun's light once a year when the planet goes around, right? And the same is true in this Trappist star system, right? So every uh, X number of days, you'd get a dip that corresponds to one of the planets. But every um, three X days, you would see a different shaped dip that would correspond to a different planet. So what you can do is if you chop up the time that you're looking at the planet into, sorry, that you're looking at the star into different time periods and you overlay them with each other you will see these con- these dips that will happen always with the same frequency with the same size of dip and you can use that to correspond to the different planets oh, so, so it is the size of dip because one of the striking things about trappist one is that these these seven planets are unbelievably similar in size to to the earth let alone mm. themselves but mm. to themselves as well mm-hmm. so presumably the dips similar for each um, one? I don't know the answer to that question, I'm afraid. But in terms of the periodicity, yeah. you can figure it out. So let's say you've got one pla- planet that's going around once a day, and you've got another planet that's going around twice a day. Okay, So you're going to see this dip once a day, mm-hmm. because that's going to be the first planet. But every second day, you're going to get a kind of double dip, uh, because you're going to yeah, have yeah. not only the first planet blocking out the light, but the you're also one. going to have the second planet. Right. And you can use that to basically take away one of the planets from the second dip, and then you've got the information of both of them. But presumably there's quite a bit of maths going on in, to, to do seven planets. I think there's some pretty heavy maths going on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely yeah. is. So yeah. we've just talked about different types of uh, star in relation to our sun. How do we know different types of stars? So, in terms of exoplanets, the all of the exoplanets that have been discovered so far have been going around stars in our own galaxy um, because they're much closer than any others, right? So this is still kind of... The technology here is phenomenal. But it, we but, can actually see these things at all. But it must be even like a, a small part of our galaxy. I mean, presumably we, we've not really looked much further than a tiny section of the spiral arm that we're seeing. Here. Oh, yeah. So even now it's a tiny proportion of, of the number of stars in our own galaxy, right? right? Um, we can talk about Kepler mm. in a little bit because that's one of the sources of a huge number of exoplanet discoveries. But that essentially is a space telescope that went up in, I think, 2009. Mm -hmm. And that just looked at a tiny segment of the sky. So it was looking at a kind of something along the lines of like a square inch of sky, if you looked Mm. up at the looked up in the evening. And that discovered over a few thousand exoplanets in that small section. Right. So that's only looking at a very small fraction of the stars that we have. Yeah. In our galaxy, it just makes you think, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> it's just a dip I, in the ocean, isn't it? But what's really exciting about Trappist is that, is that it's finding a whole bunch of rocky, what must be rocky planets, mm-hmm. it, of a similar size to Earth. And you think, well, maybe this is quite a, maybe Earth-sized planets aren't that uncommon because they haven't been easy to find so far, have they? I mean, most of the planets, mm-hmm. due to the nature of the way that we detect them. Mm-hmm. 
are gas giants or super gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn and, and planets like that, the, the majority of the ones found so far. Yeah, so one of the, I guess, surprising things that's come out of recent exoplanet discoveries is that a lot of the planets that we see are very different to ones we have in our own solar system. Right. Part of that is by nature of the detection method. So as we were talking about these dips going in front of the star mm. and that's how you pick up the planets, that favours small stars because you have a smaller light mm. to kind of see the dips, so the dips are enlarged. Um, you also want planets that are very close to their star, because uh, as with any scientific discovery, you need to replicate it, right? So you can't wait, uh, well, you could, but you don't want to be waiting years and years to wait for that planet to come around again. You want to be looking at planets that are super close. So, I mean, for example, with TRAPPIST, these planets are going around on like a, every few days around mm. their star, right? So you can see the dip going again and again and again. Um, even, oh. even Mercury takes like 78 days to orbit our star. Yeah. So if you wanted to see something like Mercury, one, it's tiny, so you'd hardly see a dip at all. And mm. two, it goes around so infrequently that you'd have to be looking at the sky yeah. for so long to for put a long up time that to it's go. Oh, I mean, yeah, even yeah. harder to find, yeah, yeah something like Pluto. <laughs> that would yes. just be a joke, wouldn't it? But yeah. I mean... What what strikes me almost instantly is if you if you're using the transitory method rather than the the way that stars wobble or whatever, mm-hmm. Trappist one seems to me that there's that there's this insane coincidence that the plane of the orbit of the planets happens to be pointing at us. I yes. mean, it's, it's, so how often can that? I mean, if you think about it, how often does that happen? Yeah. So. I was actually in a class last week where we talked about this. If you think about it in terms of probability, mm. it's not that unlikely that the star is going to be fun- passing, at least in part, through your path yeah, of vision. Right? So if you think about a, uh, a disk, mm. a loop, mm-hmm. right, and that can be the orbit of the planet, yeah. um, for you to not detect that planet, it has to be kind of orbiting... Uh, face on to you right Mm. so it's going around this loop it's not crossing across the path of the star at Mm. all and there's only two options of how that can be structured right it can either be that disc can be one way or it can be flipped yeah be Mm. the other way okay if you think about um a planet that is going around a star and it's covering the light when you see it that disc this is going to be really hard for radio right no one's going to be able to see my hands doing this like weird circling (laughs) thing yeah um but if you think about the number of different combinations, that disc can be in any plane, yeah. really, in that kind of, oh, so as you go around the circle. So it is, quite, so it is still quite a significantly high probability. Yeah, okay. so there's much more possible, there's much more, situ- there's many more situations where the planet will be crossing in front of your plane of vision, right. compared to you wouldn't see it at oh, all. Wow, that is really fascinating. Yeah. Because I, I, one thing I always used to think would be quite funny, when Galileo picked up his telescope and looked at Saturn for the first time, how irritating it would have been had Saturn been in one of those orbits where its rings are absolutely face on to you so you can barely see them. Yeah. <laughs> and so you wouldn't have seen anything unusual. Yeah. Nothing to see here. Yeah. And then move on. on. Yeah, move on. Yeah. Well, yeah, been... I mean, they're only like, <laughs> how thick are well, Saturn's rings? And, like, a few meters. Like, a few yeah. meters, yeah, right? Few you meters, wouldn't be able yeah. to see that at all. So. No. No, they, well, yeah. they do. They, it does disappear. Sometimes Saturn's really disappointing in a in a telescope uh-huh. when the rings just disappear because mm. yeah. it's 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 full on, and then other times where it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. But I guess I guess there must be I guess there must be star systems out there though. Then that we will never know if they've got planets going around them by using the transitory method. So, mm-hmm. what are the are, are are there a sort of 
host of other methods that we use to find planets. Yes, there are. So I guess one example of a method that we can use to detect other kinds of exoplanets is radial velocity technique or using the Doppler shift mm. of a planet. So this is the way that Proxima B, that mm. you talked about on the podcast yes. already, was discovered actually by a team led by Queen Mary, University of London, so right on our doorstep uh-huh. here, which is mm. very exciting. Good work. Um, and that planet... Uh, Proxima B does not transit across its star, so you cannot see the planet by using transit method. Mm. But what you can do is look at the... um, You can observe the star and observe the star's light, and as the planet-star system are kind of uh, going or rotating around their joint centre of mass... um, the star appears to wobble mm. because the planet has kind of sufficient mass that it's tugging the planet. Sorry, the planet has sufficient mass that it is tugging the star. Yeah, and so or the, both. Or both. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a two-way street, right? Two-way street. Yeah. Um, so that kind of means that the star kind of wobbles a little bit on its orbit as the planet is going around it. Mm. And if you think about uh, the light that is coming to you when you're looking at it through a telescope, half the time that that plant, that star is moving towards you in its orbit so the light starlight is blue shifted yeah. towards you and half the time it's moving away from you so it's red shifted and that difference in the uh, spectra so the difference in the amount that the light is shifted um, means that you can figure out the mass of the planet that is orbiting it what, what's incredible is that the, the when you see the spectrum of a star obviously you're you're you, you know what the composition of that star is. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you can then shift it back and forth and, and, and have, A, the accuracy must be just ridiculous, but I, I would have thought there must be a hell of a lot of noise in that data so that you have to observe that quite a lot before mm. you can get a statistical, whatever it is, sigma yeah. uh, uh, thing to, to actually get it. Because it, that must be a very, very... Is, is that a harder technique to use than the than the transitory method? So radial velocity came first. That was kind yeah. of the original exoplanet detection method. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's so extraordinary about radial velocity detections is the kind of speeds that you're looking at. So we talked about the difference in the star moving towards you mm. and star moving away from you mm. and that shift. We're talking about meters per second speed differences here Mm. and if you think about that in terms that's kind of like walking pace so you're looking at those kind of differences in speed and trying to figure out like it's it's absolutely extraordinary (laughs) yeah Yeah. and the technology has got so good that we can now measure differences in speed of less than a meter per per second yeah that are light years away yeah in, in other words it could detect the, how I'm changed, like Usain Bolt changes colour as he runs towards the 100 metre line. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's remarkable. That, oh my God, it's actually blown my mind. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously you can hear it. I mean, what's, what's incredible is that you can hear Doppler shift quite easily with, with sirens as they go past you at traffic lights. And it goes mm-hmm. past you and you can hear it. But seeing it is something completely different, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's that's extraordinary. Yeah, and so the, the kind of this huge new wave of exoplanet discoveries has really been triggered by phenomenal advances in technology. So being able to get the precision down to that metre per second um, uh, speed requirement yeah. that you that you need, and similarly for transit, if you're looking at a star that's light years away, to be able to measure a dip 
in the light, light. intensity in a way that mm. you need to detect those kind of planets. Yeah, what, is do you really... know what kind of percentage it dips? Is there a percentage kind of thing? Yes. So if you have the if you have Jupiter mm-hmm. orbiting around the sun mm-hmm. at an Earth-like orbit, that would reduce the brightness of the star by 10%. 10%, that's quite yes. that's a significant. Yes, 0.1, yeah. Hmm. If you were look, trying to detect an Earth in an Earth-like orbit around a Sun-like star, that would reduce the light by a 10,000th. 100%. Yes. So, sorry, so that's like 0.01%. Yeah, so that's, that's how much of a reduction mm, in the light you yeah, get. Yeah, that, that's, wow, that's, that's significantly small. Yes. Well, several yeah. it's magnitudes small. Much smaller. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, what's brilliant? Yeah, I mean, I do. What's a fantastic um, picture to look at with the um, with how much the star moves is how much our own sun moves mm. in its orbit, and and it's it doesn't even stay on a central point. It actually goes completely out of its of, of a central point, and that's why some people would argue that the planet definition of Jupiter isn't quite right because it doesn't orbit the sun. The sun and the sun and Jupiter actually orbit each other around a point outside of the sun's atmosphere. That's interesting. Yeah, so it's it's so Saturn, uh, sorry, Jupiter isn't really a um, isn't really a planet by the definition. That's interesting. Yeah, and if you look at the solar system, if you look at the dynamics of the solar system, mm. that is uh, primarily driven by the mass of Jupiter and Saturn. Mm. So if you look at kind of the orbit of the sun. Uh, around this kind of non-central point, as you say, that can pretty much be mathematically explained by just Jupiter and Saturn, I believe, because mm-hmm. all of the other planets are small or super far out, Pathetic. and they don't have as much yeah. of a, an impact. So that's a, a really good point, because we're kind of touching on one of my things that I can never really get my head around, is, uh-huh. is how, do, how do solar systems, like our own, stabilise out when you've got infinite possibilities of when, when planets are orbiting each other, of of suddenly an orbit not working? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's a few ways of thinking about it. One is that you don't have a, a case, well, maybe you do, I don't know, but in, in terms of planet formation theory mm. or like how these kind of systems evolve, it's not like you have a star that's flying through the galaxy and it picks up some planets as it goes along. Mm. That may well be the case. Yeah. Um, but largely it's thought that planets form in the... Oh, around the early forming star, right? Yeah. So if you have a star at the beginnings of its formation, it will tend to have like this giant dust cloud around it. And as those dust particles interact, some of them might start to clump together. Then those part, those planetesimals might start clumping together mm. to create a planet. And you kind of get this natural formation of this kind of protoplanetary disk, yeah. as it's called, mm. starting to form into a planetary what, system. What I think is a really good visual aid for that is when you're rowing, uh-huh. sometimes when you, put your, your row through it, when you row through the water, you can see that you've created a big spiral in mm-hmm. the middle, and you can see how that would collapse. But you can also see the little eddies that come off. Oh, yeah, that's and, true. And I always think, oh, yeah, if, if that was like a solar system, those, those would then be the little eddies that would form your Jupiters that would then be in orbit round thing and I always think that's a really good that's a nice image yeah. that's nice yeah. are you Oxford or Cambridge just oh, curious Salford did they oh no, no no I don't think so <laughs> anyway <laughs> that 
that's one of the things that people find fascinating as well the, the, the fact that the planets orbit in a disc and it's and that's obviously one of the reasons why they do is yes. of this yeah. spinning so that kind of supports the theory that you have this spinning gas disc that then becomes oh it's getting dodgy outside sorry about that <laughs> we are in West London <laughs> um yeah, so that's kind of one of the reasons why um, you have this kind of, well, supports mm. the theory, right? That you have this originally, you have a dust disc, and then the planets then naturally form in the disc. In terms of uh, planet formation, you kind of end up getting these planets kind of dotted in and out. Um, but as we've mentioned previously, exoplanets are not necessarily like our own solar system. Mm. So mm. we see a lot of what are known as hot Jupiters. So these are large gas giant planets like our Jupiter, but are orbiting very, very close to their host star. Mm. And that's something that we can't tr- properly explain yet in terms of our understanding of how planets form. Because if you think about that dust disk mm. that kind of hypothetically is the, the creation material of of the of the planets, yeah. the closer you get in, the, the less dust you have because the radius of that kind of Mm. ring is smaller so it's difficult to understand why you get these giant planets forming so close to their star so you you get a lot of migration don't you early on in a in a in in when a system's forming Mm -hmm. and there's that really brilliant i think it's french animation uh, some french scientists have done an animation of of how I think it's how Neptune ended up where it was. So I think you're thinking of the Nice model. Ah, there we yes, go. There which, we go. Which Love. is a oh, it's a nice, fantastic. Nice is in France. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yes. you got the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good at geography as well. well. Yeah. I'd recommend looking that up on YouTube. So this is a yeah, theoretical um, model that looks at the dynamics of the solar system, and it explains um, to an extent how the solar system became the way it is. Um, it's really cool because you can see the planets in these kind of like stable orbits. Um, and then suddenly it goes all wrong. Then see, it goes is, crazy. It goes crazy, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you have this kind of insta- inherent instability in, mm. in the system. You run the model, you end up with this period of heavy bombardment, which is mm. when you, know, you get comets and asteroids kind of flying all over the place. Two of the planets, I can't remember which ones they are, but they flip places, so they kind of completely swap. You get this huge kind of instability, um, and then the planets kind of settle down into their end state, so to speak, uh, i.e. the state uh, that we see them today. Yeah, are yeah. you absolutely certain that they do end up in an end state? Because this is what if you look at the Nice model mm-hmm. the animation, they seem to be happily going for you know millions, if not billions. I don't know what the time period is, but they seem to be going for a long time before the resonance of, between Saturn and Jupiter just send the whole thing crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's, it, I mean, it's just like frightening when you see it. Uh, it it's one of those things you think, well, can that not happen again? That's what I'm talking about—the stability of a of a, a system. Yeah. So if you look at the Nice model. Again, so it's a theoretical model, so you can get statistics kind of thrown in and figure out what's the most likely case of what what you'd see. There are, if you run that model forward in time, so not just looking at how the solar system originated, but what might happen in the future, there's like a 1% chance that Mercury is going to fly into the sun. You've got all these kind of potential scenarios that can come up. And I guess that kind of represents a potentially chaotic system, right, Mm. where you've got this inherent instability. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, one of the instabilities could be this planet nine that keeps swooping around. 
Yes. Yeah, yes. So, uh, uh-huh. Which 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 may not have apparently may not have formed in the solar system and, and it's been sucked off another one of the sun when it was born in a in a nebula apparently mm-hmm. had its brothers and sisters born in the same nebula. They think it may have. I mean, it's obviously super th- theoretical, it, but it, it, it literally, we're, with, we're with literally, yeah, you nicked a planet wow. off one of its neighbours. That is, that's really cool. Yeah, I yeah. mean, so that's a, again... So Otherwise planet, you couldn't explain how it was so far out. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's, and it, it is super far out, yeah. right? So Planet Nine is a theoretical... Um, yeah. uh, discovery, we'll go with discovery, we'll go right? With discovery, um, yeah. So that, I guess that's a really interesting... Th- point to raise at this point of the discussion right because the way that that planet was discovered was by looking at the orbital dynamics of the current planets in the solar system and Mm. saying these are a little bit off how do we make the the dynamics of the system work and the way that uh, scientists at a a number of different institutions I think have, have kind of been looking at this have have made the equations balance is by throwing this planet nine into the system and saying mm. right okay so that balances out the balances out the dynamics then we've just got to find the thing yeah. so ironically the lead scientist was the guy that demoted pluto in the first place yes so mike oh, brown at caltech crack. right yeah <laughs> what, a, what a naughty norman yeah well i mean it's karma isn't it you, yeah. you get rid of one planet and you introduce another, well there's, there's so. a lot of talk that they're actually going to say that it, they're going to again completely change the definition and say it's just bodies that are big enough to round themselves off. So we're suddenly going to have mm. 250 or something planets. I and mean, then we'd have loads of them, yeah. wouldn't we? Mm. So the, the current definition that I understand is that the body has to be kind of roughly spherical, mm. like you say, but it also has to have a kind of uh, carved out its own path, mm. right? And I think that's one of the reasons why Pluto, Pluto was demoted is because there's a number of different bodies that are kind of orbiting in the same... And it's, oh, surrounded, it, and it's surrounded, and it's surrounded by, by yeah. and there's things that are further out that are much bigger. But then saying that, Jupiter hasn't cleared its path. It's got its Jovian, um, what what are they call the Trojans, all, yes, all around it. So. Exactly. Yeah. So there's plenty of and, satellites there, and it doesn't even orbit the sun. That's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You heard it here first, yeah, right? Jupiter's so gone. <laughs> we've got to get rid of Jupiter. So for people like me who have never really thought about it, why are planets round? Why are they a sphere? Well, I mean, you can think about it in the same way as uh, why do you get smooth rocks on the seashore, right? If you have this constant bombardment by different asteroids or just generally kind of being hit from other things, yeah. it knocks off the chips. So if you had, I don't know, let's say hypothetically, you had a perfect uh, square mm. um, cube planet, yeah. okay? Every time it gets hit, it's going to get knocked off the corners, knocked off the edges. Those parts are going to get chipped off. Similarly, if you think about the gravitational pull of a planet, it's hard to kind of explain, I guess, on Earth. But if you're in a vacuum and you get, I don't know, a drop of water, right, it's going to form a perfect sphere. You see the astronauts when they on the International Space Station, that all the water just goes into a nice little ball of sphere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've got but this that, kind of... that's electrostatic charges, isn't it, rather than gravitational charges? But it's the same thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You've got... And I guess something's got to do with just the nature of an orbit as well, hasn't it? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'm trying to think if if that would affect the orbit of the planet. It might <laughs> affect the spin of the planet. So yeah. if you had like a I don't know, like a dog bone shape planet. If if it's going round, mm-hmm. that anything chipping it is going to be different than if it did a figure of eight. It would look slightly differently, wouldn't it? 
Going back to this kind of double orbit thing, mm. we can bring it back to the world of exoplanets because there has been a planet that has been discovered that is orbiting two stars. So that is, uh, it is called Kepler 16b, and it's a, a planet which is going around to two stars, so a circumbinary planet. Mm. And that is an example of one planet orbiting two different two uh-huh. different stars which is kind of cool so I don't know if it looks like a figure of eight but that's right. kind of one way of that's about as close it. as you'd get yeah so what other interesting stars are there we've just talked about one that orbits two stars what yes. about uh, rocky planets there are there are plenty of rocky planets <laughs> that have been discovered which is very exciting um, one of them is Kepler I'm just going to keep giving you Kepler planets but there's so many of them one of them is a Kepler 160 186F. Okay. So that was the first rocky planet to be found within its habitable zone. Right. So that is a planet that has a terrestrial-like surface and is at the theoretical temperature that could support uh, liquid water. Mm. So there are a number of these kind of planets that have now been discovered thanks to Kepler, which is so this. Kepler 186F. Mm-hmm. So is that the 186th star that Kepler's looked at? And therefore, the B, C, D, E, F, fifth planet out. Um, I'm not sure on the 186. It definitely was discovered by Kepler. It's definitely the fifth planet out, hence the F. Mm. I don't know what the numbering system um, Yeah, interesting, because Trappist 1, it can't be the first star that it looked at. Probably not, yeah. yeah. Or maybe it's just the most significant. Yeah, the most exciting. Maybe we can get maybe we get listeners to write in what their what their what their thoughts on that one. Yeah, yeah, we'll have We'd to. We'd like to hear from you. Yeah, good. <laughs> so, what would you <laughs> say, too. Harry? Your what's your favourite exoplanet? Ooh. What would you think's the coolest one for you? I think my favourite has to be Proxima B. Yeah. Uh huh. Because it's so close. Yeah. It's yeah. within reaching distance, right? I mean, four light years is a is a very long way. Let's not like get too carried it, away. Yeah. But that's that's potentially visible in our lifetime that's mm. pretty cool and also i'm not i'm not the type of person that likes to take one data point as as like the be all and end all but it just seems incredible that our very nearest star has a has potentially a, a sort of goldilocks planet going around it it just seems it just seems yeah. too bizarre too to yeah too good to be yeah. true isn't it just let's hope it isn't yeah. Or, I mean, maybe it's another example of the fact that planets going around stars are not uncommon. Yeah. Right? They yeah. are They are everywhere. On average, every star you see in the sky has at least one planet going around it. Well, um, I think that's the exciting thing about TRAPPIST-1 is, is that it does kind of edge ever more to, oh, my God, there's lots and lots of these planets. And, and one of them, uh, particularly around uh, cool dwarfs, mm-hmm. or super cool dwarfs, is... Because they're so much more common than main sequence stars like the Sun. Yeah, yeah. They are the most common type of star in the galaxy, which is convenient because they're also the easiest for us to just, to spot the exoplanets around, yeah. as we've mentioned before. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of advantages. Now, Matt, you had an interesting Bill Nye quote. Oh, did I? That you brought out. Oh, there. yeah. Would you like to say yeah, it Yeah, so, yeah. Well, I'd, I saw it on, on a meme. So it might, not be Bill, <laughs> it might not be Bill Nye that said it, but I, the, the quote Down was, with the kids. Was that if you were Galileo and uh, you had a, and humans had developed on one of the Trappist planets, like, let, let's say D, <laughs> for just... Well, God, yeah, yeah for D. Yeah. So he, he, he's, he's deve- they've developed on D, and they can see E, and E every now and then appears in their sky twice as big as the moon. And that's that's roughly how much these things are bigger. And 
he, looking through his telescope, he might be able to see traces of a civilization before he's ever set sail to go to the Australia equivalent of that of particular planet. planet. Yeah, Whoa. so it'd be easier for them to see civilizations on their on their other planets than it would be to visit the civilizations on their own. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just pause there for a moment. <laughs> what? Dramatic pause. Yeah, it, it is pretty incredible that one. It, yeah. You can get carried away with excitement. I can't help it. Yeah, and long may it continue. And, and, and if that planet is the 0.9, 0.9 times the size of the Earth one, yeah, it's easier for them to get off and go visit their mates. And as we said in last week's podcast. You can't help but thinking if there's life on other planets that they look human, <laughs> which is so wrong. Well, of course, I mean, you know, Stephen Jay Gould saying evolution is, if it's like a tree with branches that come out, mm-hmm. if you rewind and do the same again with exactly the same temperatures and, and everything else, same bacteria, it won't do the same branch, of course. So imagine that. Uh, but, you know, but, four yeah, light but, years away. But there's also convergent evolution where you've got um, dinosaur fish that look ever so much like dolphins, and they've mm. got no common ancestry whatsoever. Mm. So you could you could expect some things. Maybe. So what you're saying is it's going to be dinosaur fish. I I really day. I really like the concept of, of <laughs> having a starship. Let's call it the Enterprise, and off it goes, and it nice. finds a a, a civilised world, and the only way that the starship captain can get out of some danger is by actually um, getting off with a beautiful uh, uh, alien. Like that, uh, right. So I think that they must look like humans because it's the only way that they get out of trouble. I hope you're keeping up, listeners, because there will be a test. <laughs> <laughs> Mental theories. So um, I, think, I think that's how it works. Okay. It's it certainly yeah. did in Star Trek, and that's yeah. presumably the most accurate. That's a documentary, right? It is a do- I think From the it future. is. So doc- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we were conspiracy theorists, we, we might think it was. Yeah. That it's been sent to us. Let's not talk about them. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Have you watched. You set me off. <laughs> oh, there's an incredible movie. I can't remember. The oh, yeah. With the, the oh, it's got what's his face who died Alan recently. Rickman. Alan Rickman. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's Ace. Where some aliens. <laughs> Spaceballs? No, no, it's not Spaceballs, is it? It's oh yeah, what is it? It's brilliant. Gonna have to. I can't remember the name, so we're not gonna be able to do a shout out. But in that, some aliens have been watching a TV show Um, about space travellers, and they think it's a documentary. And then they come to Earth to try and be rescued by this space team. The the captain, because he's so good. And they're just a bunch of actors, and they've got no idea what they're doing. (laughs) That sounds amazing. It is. No, it's a really good film. Well, we will have to. Tell got, people before the end of the podcast what is it's got Alan Rick and it's got Sigourney Weaver in as well. Yeah. I'm it's, gonna look on my phone. You're gonna have to, to Google this one because it's it's worth it. Yeah, it is it is actually genius film that is. That's uh yeah. That's very funny. Oh and, and what's his mate name? Buzz Lightyear is the captain, isn't he? Yes, I think. The bloke that plays Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, not actual Buzz I can Lightyear. Never, I can never remember. Any his idea name? when this film was made? 90s yeah it's very 90s <laughs> <laughs> totally your era Galaxy Quest yes. Galaxy, Galaxy Quest, Quest. there that's we go 1999 yes they even develop a, a sort of weird technology don't they that, that's, that's... oh it's amazing yeah so yeah. that the aliens oh I don't want to do too many spoilers because like, I think this should be homework for the listeners yeah. right yeah. to be go and watch yeah. this movie it's fantastic but I can see what's really weird when you when you suddenly thought of that I'd already been thinking of it because when, when I just said about it being a documentary set right. in the yeah. future I said you, just like Galaxy yeah. Yeah. I couldn't think of its name yeah. 
I thought I'm going too off topic, but apparently not. No, 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 definitely not. So, Harriet, one of the things we want to speak about is the Planetary Society's upcoming projects. We know that there's something called Space Up. Should we start with that? Yes, absolutely. So we are organising a Space Up event in London on Saturday the 10th of June. Okay. So please do stay tuned for, for more information. If you sign up to our newsletter, which you should, we will have all the information about that coming up. It's going to be a kind of day-long event. We're going to have some really exciting speakers coming along to do some talks. Uh-huh. But the kind of main focus of the day is just to bring people together to talk about anything and everything they want to, um, related to space, astronomy, um, all those kind of things. So it's meant to be a very awesome. interactive day where people can um, come together and talk about Sounds space great. Stuff. Anything else coming up? Any other projects? Oh, that's the big one for now. So we're currently kind of finalising list of speakers, sorting out the venue. We'll be announcing ticket details kind of nearer the time. So do stay tuned. Remind us of how people... Uh, what's your website address? So we have a Facebook page you can find us online, which is uh-huh. Planetary Society London. Um, we also have a monthly newsletter that you can sign up to. It's awesome. Hopefully that they can... Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks for the shout-out. <laughs> you yeah. kind of do this reciprocal <laughs> arrangement, cool. right? Yeah. Um, but yes, so hopefully the details of that will be on this podcast yeah. info page, so totally. we can put that up there. Uh, that's just a, a monthly newsletter that go, we send out every every month, as you'd expect from a monthly mm. newsletter, which has a list of any and every space event that's going on in London, so not just ours, kind of everything that's going on, um, some cool space news, and kind of updates on how you can get more involved with the Planetary Society. And if someone wants to find out more about not just the Planetary Society, but about exoplanets in general, are there any websites or YouTube videos that you can think about that maybe might inflame someone? Oh, I, I don't know if you just Here saw my face. Harry, yeah, I got hands hands in the air. Okay, so, I mean, there's a few serious ones. So one, NASA has loads of information. Yeah, one about TRAPPIST-1, they've got a really cool website on there. But the TRAPPIST-1 one, one is, is unbelievable, isn't it? That, that, it's absolutely amazing. TRAPPIST-1-1, like, one, one. that's not another The TRAPPIST-1-1. One, one. The TRAPPIST-1-1. <laughs> one, one. It's, yeah, it's a bit like the one you phone if you're feeling a bit ill. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a traffic one one one. But no, it's it, it's amazing, isn't it? But really interactive, it, which, loads of information. Yeah, yeah, lots of really cool illustrations of planets, and you think, oh, that's what they look like. Yeah, but I'm not sure. They okay, do. so we've got the NASA. What else? Is yep, there? Uh, NASA also has. But, what, a but what's the what was the face lighty up moment? So you have to go on YouTube and Google. That's, that doesn't make any sense. But it so does. Go well, on YouTube Google, yeah. and YouTube. Yeah. YouTube. Um, but it is Google. It is Google inside. It is, yeah, it is yeah, Google. Yeah, that's very yeah. true. That's yeah. very true. Um, there is a fantastic acapella video on the history of exoplanets so if you type in acapella history of exoplanets aladdin someone has created a eight minute montage (laughs) of acapella music um to aladdin songs i think but the lyrics are all about the history of exoplanets and it's amazing it starts in 1995 when the first exoplanet was discovered it goes through all of the history of the latest discoveries what was the first exoplanet by the way it was um a giant planet orbiting around 51 pegasi so that was the star. It, you thought you were going to catch Harriet out. No, I yeah, didn't. Yeah, no, you I have my facts prepared. Just come prepared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this was a an exoplanet which was orbiting a main sequence star. Mm. I believe it was discovered using the radial velocity method. Mm. So that's the method of looking at the um, different shifts of the planet 
sorry, the star wobbling as it, the mm. planet orbits around it. Um, that was discovered, gosh, like 22 years ago now. Right. Have we, have we actually pictured an exoplanet? Is there a direct observation? There is, yeah. So some of the methods we've already talked about, so we've gone through transit, we've mm. done radial velocity. Um, another method that can be used to detect exoplanets is direct imaging. So the, technologi- well, the technology is now sufficiently good that we can look at stars and... Um, directly image planets that are going around them. So that is looking at the light that is reflected off the star, reflecting off the planet, and then coming back down to us. How do we control the light coming off the star so that it doesn't bleach out the image on that? So so one of the things that you have to do with direct imaging to greatly improve the contrast is block out the light from the star. So in the same way that you, if you put your hand up to the sun, you shield Mm -hmm. your eyes, you can see much clearer, right? You're not blinded by the sun. Um, You can use a coronagraph um, to block out the light from a star. And then the light from planets is much easier to spot. Yeah. And one of the things that I've seen quite recently is, I think it's NASA, I think, are doing it, is a space-based chronograph of of actually flying out this thing that's sits in front of space-based telescopes. Yes. So one of the... Uh, one of I mean, there's so many telescopes and projects that yeah. are going on will be coming up in the near future, which are incredibly exciting, um, to try and detect even more exoplanets. <laughs> yeah, one of those is going to be called WFIRST. So this is going to be a direct imaging telescope that's going yeah. up, I think it's the 2030s, so it's kind of a little oh. bit far-fetched. Maybe it's late I'll 2020s. I'll be gone by then. Do you mean half-past eight? Or do you mean um, the year 2030? I mean the year 2030. I was massive excited because Matt's getting really excited that we're close. It's, 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 it's actually now. It's actually now. It's 8.30 now. No, but that is going to be uh, using this direct imaging technique. Um, and I think that they're planning to send up one of these, like you say, this sail that's going to block out the uh, sun to use it. So with something like James Webb Telescope, mm. what's your thoughts on that? Obviously incredibly exciting. We've put some pictures up on the blog and it looks... Incredible, and I can't wait till it goes I, I, up. I'm just, I'm just too stressed about it. I'm still stressed. Yeah, Matt's about very it. nervous about oh. it. But what are your thoughts on so that? So I, I was watching a documentary about it the other day, and it makes me so stressed just thinking about the number of different things. I think yeah. it said there's like 137, I think, different processes that have to happen perfectly for it to come out and set itself up in space. Because but, right. but that's a bit. To be fair, that's a bit like the fillet lander and everything that have to ha- happen with that. Yeah, and all those true. little burns, and, and you think they they, could, they they are really good with the big with the big projects. They they they, they work we really well. We just hope but that it's not going to yeah. do what others have done. And well, it's the it's, it's the Hubble one. Is the Hubble one is just the memory of Hubble being wrong is 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 too horrific. And the thing yeah. is, so Hubble was pretty well is pretty close to the Earth, yeah. right? So astronauts were able to go up and service it, right? Um, at great difficulty, and actually. That oh, yeah, was actually yeah. Let's not, let's not trivialise oh, yeah. this, right? But with James Webb, it is going to be, I think it's like a million kilometres away yeah. from mm. the Earth. We're not so going to be you can't just nip over with a screwdriver. You can't and just go and say it, hello and fix it. Mm. No, it it's it's, a, it's a Lagrange point, isn't it? Yes. But L2, is L2, that L2, yes. And, so uh, why do they put it at 
why why are they going to put it so far out if it's if it's a disaster if you can't fix it? <laughs> so we've talked about orbital dynamics already. Uh, one of the one of the interesting things if you look at kind of a two body system, so looking at the Earth and the Sun, um, looking at the dynamics of that system, you get what are known as Lagrangian points. So these are there are five Lagrangian points in this two body system, and these are points of uh, stability, right? So if you have a uh, well, the potential of the star, the sun, and the earth kind of cancel each other out uh-huh. at these points. L2 is a one of these stable points. So it's a really great spot to put telescopes mm. because you don't have to tweak it too much. No and it will kind of stay mm. where it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, Interesting. ISS was just... Or, sorry, ISS? Hubble just orbiting around the earth, yeah. right? But the James Webb is going to be super far out in a fixed point and will yep. be staying there. So let's hope that it can fix itself if anything does go wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, I wonder if they would ever, you know, maybe with all SpaceX and SLS and, mm-hmm. and you know, all these other ones, New Glenn, that maybe they could fix it if yeah. it was in a real... Because that's, that's a lot of hardware just to leave out there rotting, particularly the mirrors... Oh, those yeah. beautiful yeah. gold mirrors. Beautiful gold mirrors. <laughs> so don't, nice no, we can't, we can't just leave it out there. Do you think it's like, you know like how frustrating it is when you get back from the shops and you realise you've forgotten the milk or the bread and so, and someone goes, I'll go. Do you think it could be similar to that? I think it would be a similar sort of... Oh, what did we forget on the on the James <laughs> Webb? Get back. <laughs> no, the worst is if I it's one of those hideous oh. things like, yeah, well, we got some Russian parts, but they, we, they thought we were working in metres, but we were working in feet. So oh, no, that's oh, no. very spinal oh, tap, isn't it? Well, it's, it's very space. <laughs> uh, a that's happened of, before, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, a couple of things are smashed into Mars because of that. Yeah. Oh. I was like, oh, yeah. you were working in, oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh god, I'm going to no. be very, very tense you know, in 2018. I, I, I've got a good up. feeling about it. I think. Yeah, it's no, it's going to be amazing. So, what is there? Is there any other uh, other? So we got W first, and we got, was it called W first? It was called W first. Yeah, I can't remember what it stands for. James, but it's James Webb, the yeah. JWST. We've else? got TESS. So I mean, astro. I don't know how astronomers come up with these cool nicknames, but mm. yeah. So we've got the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Tess. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be going up again in 2018. It, so same time as James Webb. Is that a sort of Kepler replacement, or is it, or is it a bit even more powerful than Kepler? So it is going to be, I guess, kind of a follow-up to Kepler. So it's using the same technique, still mm. looking at transit. So looking for those dips in the stars. It's from what I understand, it's slightly less precise or mm. accurate. Mm. So the precision, precision of the measurements is kind of little bit reduced compared to Kepler but it's, it, look, it has a much greater field of view so instead of looking at one very small section of the star, sky Tess is going to be looking at hundreds and thousands of stars right so it's uh, yeah a bit more what was the there was a recent European mission that pretty much mapped every star uh, that's right Gaia Gaia yeah, yeah. yeah. uh huh so um, named after another role named after another role in synthesizer yeah yeah <laughs> available from all good music stores <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. there you go so we've got tests going up that's quite exciting yeah. another one is we've got the planetary transits and oscillations of stars Whoa. affectionately known as Plato Plato so that is nice. uh, a European space agency project actually so that's a space observatory that's under development that's going to be going up in 2024 mm-hmm. um, that's a bearable time frame Good yeah work, ESA. but 2030s I'm just Bit too far off. Just too far off, and that's why I was a bit depressed about the Europa Clipper. 
gosh, when is that going? It's, just, uh, it's like something like twenty in the in the sort of twenty twenty four, but it won't get to Jupiter till the twenty thirties. Oh yeah. yeah, it's a long way, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You'll still be doing podcasts yeah. by then. Oh yeah, we will. Podcast number one thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. We might be hitting the thousandth episode. That's Imagine a very that. good point. Yeah, you no, should try and time it right. Do like the the big podcast one thousand yeah, should be a very. It's got a hundred every two years, so yeah, it'll be yeah twenty years. Twenty years, we'll get. We'll have thousands. loads more grey hair than we already have. Yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. But so many more. I don't know if I can get more. This is it. Each right? one is a story. Yes, yeah. it's yeah. totally true. <laughs> and imagine how many times Harriet will have been on by then. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Plenty more podcasts even, to come, right? Even Definitely Harriet will is. be old. <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. Time passes for everyone, yeah. right? So, it does, uh, alas. Oh, uh, yes. So is there anything else that we haven't covered? Cover? <laughs> One thing I would like to say at the end, if that's okay. all right. Yeah, so yeah. in terms of listeners and how they can get involved, right? So we've talked about um, NASA website, checking out that YouTube video of uh-huh. the exoplanet, yeah. um, Acapella story, which yeah. is very, Definitely. very funny, I have yep. to say. Um, but there's also ways that people can do this kind of science themselves right so if you haven't been on zooniverse or looked at citizen science already please do it's a fantastic website that allows people to get involved and do real scientific research or contribute to real scientific research one of the uh, projects that you can get involved in is called planet hunters Mm. so that allows people to actually look at this um, radio velocity data um and look at, well, I think it's radio velocity. I'm not sure. Anyway, look at this um, data. Well, actually, the one that I did was, mm-hmm. was actually, yeah, light dip data. So, oh, so it was transit. Yeah, so it was oh, transit. okay, there you go. And you kind of, ha- yeah, because you, you, your eye is better at, at seeing the pattern than, than even the best pattern re- recognition. AIs are still. We can still beat the machines at something. Something, right? Absolutely. I don't know how for long. Yeah, probably not much longer. No. But um, yeah, so that's the one way people can get involved. They can actually look for planets themselves, which is really cool. Another way is by supporting the Planetary Society. Hey. So um, one of the things that the Planetary Society does is fund exoplanet research. So that is a great way. If you're interested in becoming a member, you can can sign up online. We just got our membership cards. Yeah. Please get involved yourself. It's amazing. I might even take a picture of Jamie in his t-shirt. I think you should. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's a strong look. People want to see it. That's the news. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> exactly. So there's loads of different ways to get involved and the science ain't stopping anytime soon. I think we can So yeah, we we, we can be proud of ourselves, Jamie, that we've helped that maybe we'll help in the future just tip the balance to find life on another planet. Well, if I know our listeners, there are literally tens of them that agree. <laughs> and, um, oh dear. Well, you know I always cut that out, Joe. I know. I try and get that joke in every podcast. And I always cut it out. I demand it be left in. Well, Harriet, thank you so much for joining us again. This that is for the second fantastic. time. Please, as, as Harriet said, go to the website. Please check it out. See if you're free on June the 10th to go to Space Up. Sounds amazing. And we'll see you in Podcast 27. Awesome. Thanks, Harriet. Thank you. Bye. Bye.